and welcome to The Revolution Will Not Be podcast. I'm Corinna Lotz. I'm the arts editor for The Real Democracy Movement. I'm really pleased to be joined by Glyn Moody. Glyn has been writing about copyright, digital rights, and the internet for 30 years. He's the editor of The World Culture Project and author of World Culture, the book, which is freely available as an ebook. Hello, Glyn. Hello. Your new book, World Culture, How Big Content Uses Technology and the Law to Lock Down Culture and Keep Creators Poor, takes the reader by the hand through the incredible complexities of copyright and intellectual property rights in this digital era. So can you guide us through the jungle of content ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you say, it's hideously complicated and it requires 300 pages to do it thoroughly, which uh, we can't reproduce here. But the key issue is that copyright isn't working. There is this kind of belief or myth or propaganda that copyright is indispensable for creators. And even creators seem to believe that, you know, they seem to think they have to fight for copyright. But if you look at the numbers, 99% of creators, possibly 99.9%, barely earn a living wage from the money that they get from copyright. And so the idea that copyright is working is just absurd. And it's, it's simply this, as I say, propaganda really from the big companies that are making the money. It's the intermediaries, the publishers, the recording companies, the film studios. It's working for them and their profits are soaring. But the people that copyright claims to help and claims to support, in other words, the creators, are actually suffering enormously. So the book is really looking at how that has come about and, and suggesting a few possible avenues for the future. I mean, that's obviously much harder and much more broad. Can you, can you just may explain what is content ownership? Well, that's right. Um, uh, copyright um, was invented by the Brits. Of course, all the problems go back to us Brits in 1710 with something called the Statute of Anne. And it came up with the idea that the government would give creators a monopoly in the um, spread of their works. And so it's, it's actually a monopoly. And as most people know, monopolies are bad things. So that should be a, a red flag just to start with, the fact that we are actually praising monopolies and encouraging them to be stronger and longer. And so the idea is that in return for that monopoly, which the government will back up using basically the law, which means people who break that monopoly will ultimately get sent to prison, after a certain period of time, the works that are protected by that monopoly will enter what's called the public domain, which is basically there for anyone to use for any purpose. So it's supposed to be a kind of quid pro quo. And that's the other problem with copyright is that in 1710, the copyright term, in other words, the government's protected monopoly lasted for 14 years with an extension of another 14 years, so maximum 28 years. So if my book, for example, if it were uh, published in 1710, in 28 years time, it would be in the public domain. I've actually put it in the public domain now, but back then it would have been in the public domain 28 years. What has happened over the last 300 years is that the copyright industry, which has sprung up, has said, well, this copyright stuff is really good. Let's have more of it. And they have extended the term of copyright again and again and again until now copyright term in most parts of the world is the life of the creator plus another 70 years 
So that's like 100, 140 years. What that means in practice is that any work created today will never enter the public domain in our lifetimes. You and I will never see and be able to use works created today. Maybe our grandchildren will, but we certainly won't. So there has been this distortion of the original idea of a monopoly, and then afterwards it becomes freely available into basically an almost infinite monopoly. Um, I'm just wondering though, because has it not migrated from the original thing that it protects the interest of the creator to being taken over by huge corporations who are not the actual creators? I mean, That's how, right. Why did, how did that happen? Uh, basically, um, if you think about uh, creativity, I mean, obviously people create things, but then if you want to distribute them, you need some kind of distributor. And so in addition to the creator, there grew up this sector, which is the distribution network. And that would typically be a publisher who would um, print the books, turning your manuscript into a physical book, and then deliver those books ultimately to bookshelves on uh, bookstores um, and similarly in the music world um, you know music is great but with the rise of things like uh, LPs, CDs and now MP3s you need or so we are told to have an intermediary to get that stuff out and what those companies have rather cleverly done is they've taken control of the creativity and the way they've typically done that is they've said to the creator well you know we're here to help you but to do that, you need to assign us your copyright. So typically, the intermediaries end up owning the copyright for the stuff which is created by other people. And once they've got that copyright, they can use that to enforce their monopoly, in which they do using their lawyers. So there's a shift from this original idea that the creator had a monopoly but probably wouldn't really be able to enforce it to the situation where you get the huge global companies have huge legal departments enforcing that copyright monopoly rigorously. And then not only that, but they also lobby for ever stronger laws so they can then enforce their monopolies even more. Um, yeah, and I wanted to um, look at some of the examples you give in your book. And one of them was the ridiculous example of 1984. Would you like to tell them? Yeah, I mean, uh, so, I mean, obviously everyone knows uh, George Orwell's book. And there are lots of elements to this, but the, the, the key thing is that an ebook was created from the original text and it was put up for sale on Amazon. And so people would download that ebook onto their Kindles and they would read it. And then it turned out um, a little later on that the company that was selling that ebook didn't have the requisite permission from the original owner of the 1984 text. And therefore, they were not allowed to sell that ebook. But it went further than that because when you buy an ebook, you don't actually buy an ebook. You just basically pay for the right to access that ebook. And so, what Amazon was able to do, and indeed, in general, when you have a digital artifact, the intermediaries can do, Amazon actually took that book back because that digital artifact is still connected to the mothership they still have control over something you thought you had bought. And that really is indicative of this enormously important shift, which is, again, the other thread in my book, going from an analog world, a world of things like books and um, 
LPs, even CDs, to a world purely that is digital, where you just have a flow of ones and zeros across the internet. So you go from this uh, corporeal world to a completely disembodied world, and that has enormous benefits. I mean, potentially it could be, you know, the greatest thing to happen to humanity. Unfortunately, uh, businesses found a way to subvert that by using that to control what we do with things that we thought we'd bought. It seems to be the ultimate, most extreme form of what Marx would have called alienation. So, yeah. first of all, mm. the creator is alienated from his or her product or their product. Nowadays, it has to be there. Um, and also that the user and even the buyer cannot be a buyer. Well, that's right. There's no longer a buyer. You're basically given a license. You don't own it. You're, you're given a license which can be taken away. And one of the worst, well, many <laughs> terrible examples, one of the ones that really annoys me, frankly, is in the world of libraries and the world of academia, because, you know, there you have people striving to produce knowledge and to share that knowledge. I mean, this is very much their kind of mission statement. And what's happened is that we have moved from a world of physical books in libraries to ebooks in libraries, because a lot of publishers are only producing ebooks. And the libraries no longer own those books. They license them. Not only are they licensed, sometimes they're licensed for a limited period. So they license a book for two years or whatever it might be, or they license it for a certain number of loans. And after that, the book ceases to be available. So the idea that you can actually loan out a book that you bought in your library no longer obtains. The publishers have so much control over the actual use of an ebook that they can limit how many times a book is lent from an academic library and again you know the idea that something that is striving to spread knowledge should be limited in this way really simply because they can i mean publishers now can do that and there's nothing that the libraries can do to really fight back could you maybe just in a nutshell encapsulate why the story of aaron um, Schwartz was so important in this whole saga. Sure. Uh, he is very much an iconic figure. I mean, he was a, a brilliant hacker. He coded many important projects. And really arising out of that and parallel to it, he realized that, just as I've said, access to knowledge was being restricted by the academic publishing industry which was um, not just obsessed with profits, it actually realized it had an incredible machine for producing those profits. So uh, for example, the probably the top publisher, Elsevier, um, has a profit margin between 35 and 40%, which uh, is just extraordinary because most companies, if they have a profit margin of 10%, think they're doing pretty well. But if they're squeezing a profit margin of 35, 40% out of that market, it basically means it's a monopoly market where they can set any price and people have to pay it. And so um, what Aaron Schwartz said was, this is so fundamentally unfair that we should really fight against it using um, perhaps not any means, but uh, all reasonable means. Uh, in particular, he advocated people releasing copies of journal articles freely because one of the absurd uh, aspects of copyright is that the academics who write papers 
are usually encouraged to assign the copyright to the academic publisher, which means that the actual academics cannot share their own papers with colleagues. They have to get permission from the publisher to share that paper with their colleagues. And, and Swartz basically said, well, this is absurd. You know, we should just share them anyway. Uh, and at the end uh, of his all too brief life, he, uh, for reasons we're not quite sure why, was downloading millions of these papers from uh, the MIT network. Um, as I say, we don't know whether he was going to release them or whether he was going to analyze them. But the fact is, he downloaded them without the authorization that the publishers you know, required. He was arrested and essentially he was threatened with 30, 35 years in prison for merely trying to, well, potentially trying to liberate those articles. And obviously the thought of being in prison for that time uh, just proved too much and unfortunately he committed suicide uh, at an incredibly young age, really a victim of copyright. It's a terrible story, but there's a, you also recount some other ridiculous well, uh, uh, stories. I thought the, um, the example you gave of dot-com, which you will explain in a minute, um, showed how the, these laws are require the state uh, and do use the state in to to enforce them so mm. um, it's a a collaboration or a direct relationship between this a state and it's as you explained it's not just america and britain but right throughout the world in the and, south and indeed you're right i mean as i mentioned at the beginning it, it is a state enforced monopoly and what that means is that the copyright owners who are typically the intermediaries now rather than the artists can call upon the state to enforce that monopoly and the ridiculous uh, situation with uh, com, who is this flamboyant uh, character originally from germany who has since moved to new zealand was that he set up um, a very large um, basically cloud computing site so people could store things in the cloud and uh, naturally, you know, people stored quite a lot of copyright material. That's what they did. It's not what he did. So it's, there's no question that he was actually making illegal copies. But people were uploading unauthorized copies to this site. And uh, the um, authorities in New Zealand, really at the prompting of America, which again was at the prompting of the uh, large publishers, uh, essentially sent in you know, about 70 armed officers to arrest him. I mean, this was literally people in helicopters with, you know, automatic weapons. Uh, and he was just there with his wife and young children. Uh, and they swept in as if he was some kind of, you know, immensely powerful drug lord. And there is still an ongoing battle over his potential extradition from New Zealand to America. This is like 10 years it's been running. Uh, because he's you know, arguing, obviously, that this is absurd, that he's being extradited for running a website, um, and that these extreme uh, governmental forces were put into play for somebody. He said that, you know, if they just knocked on his door, he would have come out. But they, they sent in people with machine guns and helicopters. Sounds like E.T. I mean, yeah, it's just extraordinary. I mean, it, it, it shows that, you know, the copyright industry is absolutely shameless. They don't mind how they look. You know, they're quite happy to engage in these exaggerated moves because they, they almost believe that that's what they're entitled to. This might be, might be interesting to explain how you show in the book 
the installing filters, which maybe you could explain, by big corporations to install filters to check whether they're using mm. um, copyright breaking material, um, how that is actually infringing democratic rights of, you know, privacy and absolutely, yeah. You know, there's been this ongoing battle which has been ra <clears throat> raging with. Uh, it's fit for, it seems to me the only good people has been the Pirate Party and the United Nations, you, uh, you know, yeah. rapporteurs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yes, in fact, that in many ways is the kind of climax of the book and in, in, indeed the kind of worst aspect of copyright. This is the uh, European Union's copyright directive, which was passed a couple of years ago after an incredible four or five years of battles um, by people you know, from Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, downwards, saying this is a really bad idea. Do not do it because you will harm you know, the European internet and the European economy. But the lobbyists and the copyright industries prevailed. Um, and the worst aspect of that particular law, as you rightly say, are these upload filters. Because one thing that the copyright industry has been trying to do is to turn everyone else into their police. So they want everyone out there to essentially stop anyone making copies of their copyright material. And the obvious people to do that are Google and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And so they pushed and obtained this law which says that these very large platforms must take measures to stop people uploading unauthorized material. Now, we warned, many people warned, Tim Berners-Lee warned, that the only way to do that is through upload filters, which is literally what it says, is that everything that is uploaded is inspected before it is uploaded onto the actual system. And uh, rather appallingly, the people in uh, support of this law denied this. They said, oh, no, there are other ways of doing this. And when they were challenged, they said, well, you know, it's not really our job to say. I mean, the clever people will come up with something, even though all of the clever people said there is no other way apart from these upload filters. Once the law was passed, the same people who said they weren't necessary said, well, actually, you're right. We do need upload filters. So it was a trick, basically. And so we now have the situation whereby in Europe, uh, uh, laws are being passed because a European directive has to be turned into national legislation that will require the major platforms to essentially install upload filters. Now, why is that a problem? Well, if you look at copyright law, we already know it's so complex that it often takes years in the courts to establish what exactly it means. So the idea you can encode that in a piece of software that you stick in an upload filter is clearly absurd. There is no way an upload filter using algorithms can actually make correct judgments about what is legal and what is illegal. Uh, and so there's two aspects to it. One is there's going to be tremendous loss of freedom of expression because these upload filters are going to be very crude. And so they're going to block a lot of legitimate things like, you know, parodies, commentary, even memes. I mean, memes very often use copyright material legitimately, but an upload filter is unlikely to un understand a meme and therefore may well block it because it will only see copyright material. And the other side that's really worrying, as you rightly say, is privacy, because these filters will be checking everything that is uploaded to these major platforms. And so we are instituting a kind of, you know, digital surveillance. And in fact, I think it's important to emphasize that when you combine copyright with the Internet, the 
inevitable end point is surveillance because the copyright world wants to know who is making copies. The only way you can do that is to actually look at every single thing that is happening on the internet. So if you accept copyright, you are accepting uh, perpetual nonstop surveillance. So just to, to f finish, um, so that means that the solutions that you suggest at the end of your book are actually realistic in the sense that if you, if you keep, well, I think you suggested three solutions. One was reforming existing legislation. The second was abolishing copyright altogether. And the third was crowdsourcing all creative production. Is that a fair summary? Well, in fact, the last two go together, because if you're going to get rid of copyright, then obviously everyone, including the creators, is going to say, well, how am I going to make a living? And that's, I mean, I think that's why we should get rid of copyright is because they're not making a living. So, um, yes, one suggestion which is already working is this crowdsourcing approach, what's also known as true fans. It's the idea that if you could get a thousand people, you know, paying you like a hundred pounds a year, then you'd end up with a hundred thousand pounds a year. And you wouldn't be sharing that with the publishing companies or the recording companies. At the moment, they are getting 95% of that and the artist is getting 5% of that. So you actually only need a fairly small number of people to give you money on a regular basis. And what's great about this idea, I think, is that it builds on the, you know, the contact and the connection between a creator and their audience. The audience loves a creator's works and therefore they are willing to support it, not buy something that has been created, but they are willing to support the next thing that will be created. So they are actually paying forward. So it's, I think it's a really exciting idea that you don't say, I'm a consumer, I'm going to buy your last book or your last um, you know, MP3 file. I, you say, I love your work. I want you to produce more of it. I will pay you, you know, even if it's one pound a month you know, for, for years. If enough people do that, then the creators end up with more money than they do under copyright. And they have a regular income that lets them create with a certain safety net, which currently they don't have because copyright copyright doesn't provide that so really the idea is that copyright just isn't working so why are we keeping it and there is already this system i mean the fact that we have things like patreon and um kickstarter i mean these have been around for 10 years now people are happy to give money to causes or people that they're interested in so it's not a far out idea it's already happening i think we just need to encourage more people to do it and then ultimately people might realize that copyright isn't necessarily the best solution. And in fact, that can just let it wither away. So that's wonderful because it's future orientated rather than just regurgitating exactly. what we already know. Um, mm. I'm just going to thank you for listeners for listening. Thank you, Glenn, for fantastic uh, discussion. Pleasure. And if you want to find out more about the work that the Real Democracy Movement does and our other podcasts, please check out realdemocracymovement.org and you can see our also our free online education course there and you can take part in a discussion about system change and how we could get there thank you